Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today on the podcast, we have lots of people, um, which is fun. Um, and uh, really excited uh, to have uh, all, all four of these uh, uh, women on the podcast. We've got uh, Dr. Amoy Hugh Penny. Am I saying that right? Yes, Good. perfect. Dr. Denise Ross, Dr. Margot Ueo, and Dr. Maya Hernandez. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Thank you for having us. So awesome. Uh, before I get started, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, where, I'm, where I'm producing this podcast. I'm producing this podcast on the uh, stolen lands of the Talaman, Klehus, Homoko, and why Comox First Nations, um, who were one nation before we settlers came in and separated them all into reserves. I do just want to sort of bring some attention to um, uh, something that's actually kind of relevant um, uh, in that it, when I was reading the first uh, the first page of sort of the main article that we're going to be talking about today, um, uh, there was a reference to uh, native boarding schools. Uh, and so, as folks will know, um, or some folks will know, they've been kind of following these stories. Um, I think it was in May, May 2021, like a year, yeah, it was a year, almost a year to the day after the George Floyd murder, was the the uncovering of 215 uh, child graves at the Kamloops uh, Indian Residential School, which is about, I don't know, as the crow flies, about four hours east of where I'm at um here in british columbia uh and what we saw sort of following that was a lot more of these schools um um tried to secure the funding from the government to do the work to see if they had sort of similar grave sites on their on their lands and they're using this technology called ground penetrating radar uh, which is kind of like a ground sonar sort of thing to sort of um, um determine things anyway sort of over the span of sort of the 2021, 2022, there was quite a lot of information coming out. I think the numbers were well over 10,000 graves had been uh, uncovered. Um, uh, but just sort of a small percentage of, of the schools. I believe there's 150 residential schools in Canada, um, you know, when, you know, in sort of the 1800s, 1900s. Um, and I think they've only done scans like six school so far anyway they just um just a couple of days ago the saint mary's Res residential school in kenora ontario which uh for geography folks is smack dab right in the center of canada it's a it's a town out in out in far northwest ontario uh, probably a hundred miles from the uh, manitoba border uh and the saint mary's residential school uh operated from 1897 to 1972 um uh anyway they've they they just completed their scans and they found 170 plausible child burials on the site um uh, which is just wild um oh something like uh the estimate was something like 150,000 indigenous children were taken from their homes and forced to live in these schools to be kind of assimilated into into western culture there were no way schools and in fact were every way um uh, you know, concentration caps. In fact, when I had Grant Bruno on the podcast, I think it was episode 37, he's a First Nations uh, man and a father of a 
uh, of a of a young boy with autism, and uh, he was. We were talking a lot about sort of autism in Indigenous culture. I actually got a couple more interviews coming up related to that, but um, he was saying that. Uh, I think it was the the Indian agents back in the day. So these folks were called Indian agents that came and essentially, you know, directed the removal of all these children uh, from their homes, uh, and in fact. I talk a lot about it on other episodes. The The town that I live closest to is a town called Powell River, which is named after a guy named Israel Powell, who was the primary provincial Indian agent that uh, pulled everyone away. So there's actually a massive movement to change the name of the town right now to Tisquat, which is the uh, indigenous, uh, original indigenous name of the area. But, um, but uh, point being, there uh, the uh, he apparently... I don't, know if, I don't know if it was Israel himself, but they apparently designed the residential schools. It was the residential schools or the reserves, one of the two. They designed them based on based off of uh, the concentration camps from 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 uh, from, uh, from, uh, from from the Holocaust. Uh, uh, no, sorry, pardon me. I've got my dates re reversed. Hitler designed as concentration camps based on the residential schools. Got my dates wow. wrong. Yeah, because the residential <clears throat> schools were all in the 1800s. Um, and so he thought, you know, and so essentially this was a, was in, in, in you know, there's no other word for it, but a, but a genocide and, and and just so many more. Anyway, I, I just want, I, I bring that up not to sort of, um, you know, be a downer or whatnot, but I, but I think sort of the talk about the residential schools has kind of faded from the news quite a bit. I think it's just important to keep talking about it. Um, I'll leave it there, but just I'll, I'll finish with um, encouraging folks, you know, who may be triggered or traumatized by um, this conversation about residential schools and sort of things related to it, that you can call um, the National Residential School Crisis Line, 1-866-925-4419. And if you're looking to, for a, a great place just to donate, and if you're looking to sort of put your money where your mouth is, the Crisis Line is a wonderful charity, um, 24 hours a day they operate. and and uh, they're doing um, really good things. So thank you for that. So uh, getting to uh, the topic of today, um, this kind of all came out of um, um, uh, the article you folks uh, all, all got together writing about the, the culturally re relevant pedagogy, a word I have not been able to pronounce up until quite recently. Um, um, uh, and and some really, really, really kind of cool stuff coming out of that. So I'm looking forward to kind of kind of diving into that. But before we kind of get to it, um, um, and you know, this could take up you know half the episode as we have four wonderful people here with all unique stories. I like to get folks' origin stories about kind of how they got into the field, uh, uh, you know, and and kind of kind of doing this work, but also kind of finish it up with sort of um how how you all became connected with each other as well so if anyone wants to start denise <laughs> sure i'll start there you go forced <laughs> so my name my name is denise ross page um i am um i've been working in the field now for probably 30 years i think close to 30 years i think so um if you count the beginning of graduate school till now as sure. <laughs> being in the field um i Attended Spelman College. While I was there, I decided I wanted to work with kids with um, disabilities and I wanted to focus on behavior. At the time, it was behavior disorders, emotional behavior disorders, and I wanted to go to Columbia University. 
And when I did, I went there and the program was a behavior analysis program. I worked under Doug Greer and um, finished my master's and doctorate there. And then I went on to teach at a university and I've stayed at universities. And that's how I've been connected to everyone on this mm. uh, podcast. So that's how that happened. And I'll let them tell the rest of the stories. Cool. So. Thanks, Denise. Um, my name is Amoy Hugh Penny, and I am connected to Dr. Denise Ross through Columbia University Teachers College. Um, I've been in the field 26 years, um, um, and probably a little more if you count uh, the two years of undergrad <laughs> on this track in hmm. psychology. Um, so how I got into this field, um, I've been studying psychology since high school. Um, I was a peer counselor in high school. Um, I did psychology undergrad and I saw a sign on the wall asking about working with children with autism as like independent study. And back then it was, you know, oh, when will I ever get a chance to work with children with autism? Mm. Um, yes. You know, now there aren't nearly enough people to do that. Mm. So uh, that was kind of my track. I serendipitously worked as a teaching assistant because you can't do anything with a BA in psychology mm -hmm. um, <laughs> when I moved to New Jersey and um, just so happened that at that school there were some consultants from Dr. Greer's program setting up a CABAS program and um, that's how I ended up going to Columbia University kind of interviewed and had enough credentials to get in <laughs> so uh, so different people end up on different paths and that's kind of how I got on mine um, and did my master's and my doctorate there and TA'd under Dr. Denise Ross when she was teaching there hmm. um, and then went on to do a lot of adjunct teaching because I really enjoyed doing clinical work and so uh, and teaching. So I did a lot of work in schools as a behavior analyst and uh, BA supervisor in schools and then in school administration while doing college teaching as well. Hmm. Cool. I can go next. Um, yeah. my name, I'm Maya Hernandez. I um, currently live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I ended up at Western for my undergrad and Western Michigan University and took one of my first classes there was um, Principles of Behavior by taught by Dr. Malak and his grad uh, student assistants. And I just fell in love with that class. And it, for me, it was, I mean, there's definitely like an aha moment in behavior analysis where the principles, the basic principles of behavior, I saw them everywhere. And I was like, yes, this is, you know, I love using the science to help improve people's lives. And um, Dick's big message was save the world with behavior analysis. And that always really spoke to me um, and seeing all the possibilities that we could make the world a better place. And so I decided to stay and do my master's um, in his um, BATS program. And that's where I was so lucky to have Dr. Denise Ross as an instructor. Um, and it was, she was just amazing. She blew me away. I was look, look up to her, looked up to her in that moment, <laughs> continue to look up to her and admire her. And um, just the amazing work that she's been doing with literacy and language and having her as an instructor and a mentor, she had encouraged me to continue to do my um, PhD, which I did with her. And now I work at um, Lake Michigan College, which is a community college in Southwest Michigan. And mm. I love working. I love the students that I work with. Um, 
I love continuing to spread the good word of behavior analysis to the future and seeing where the students take it. Nice. Does that community college like have a like an undergrad program or? So we we do a uh, associate program. We do have a small psychology department, which mm. my um, department head, it's just me and my department head, um, uh, Dr. Amy Skrima. She actually did her doctorate at Western also, but in mm. OBM. And we actually just started last year. We started teaching principles of behavior there. We used Dr. Malat's book and we started a practicum site with a local autism center called Logan Autism Center. So we've, we're, we're really pushing the, the, the pipeline of uh, behavior analysis um, for students there that we've had transferred to other major universities in the state and out of state. Hmm. Right on. I constantly get confused by uh, Western. Uh, because we we now have Western University in Canada, which also has uh, an ABA program, and it's also not that far from you folks down in London, Ontario. But uh, mm-hmm. I keep remembering, and I was like, all these people went to Western. All oh, all these cool folks went to Western, <laughs> and they all none of them went to Western. <laughs> I actually taught at Western, Ben. Did you? Oh, very. Um, yeah, I was the ABA program advisor at oh, University yeah. of Western Ontario for um, for a while there, and um, I was an adjunct professor there for about three, four years. Well, it's not surprising because I did see that one of the articles that you wrote with uh, the the two, two of the professors from Brock, um, um, uh, Nicole, Luke, and somebody else. Um, yes, Gabrielle Zai, who's, who is uh, also at Western after me. Right, right. Nicole and I were there for a little while together. Nice, after Luke. nice. <laughs> right on, right on, right on. And Marco? Hi, um, I'm Mark. My name is Margaret. Why I go by Margo. And um, I got into the field of ABA by accident. Um, mm. I wanted to study clinical psychology. Actually, when I started, uh, I, I was taking um, undergraduate courses in psychology, but my thought was to go into clinical psychology and specifically to, um, to sort of study trauma. Mm. Uh, you know, just kind of, I guess, maybe my, my own personal history led mm. me to kind of be curious about that and want to do that kind of work. Mm. Um, and so I went to a local community college and got my associates and then I went to Western to complete my bachelor's and one of the requirements Western had was you have to take Dr. Dick Moulin's 3600 course um, mm. introduction to behavior analysis so as soon as I took that course and you know just like I said it made sense and I was able to apply the principles um, and I think as I learned more about the different options within the field of psychology you know I felt like this was empirical, it's parsimony, it's, I can make sense of it, I can apply it, and I can see outcomes. And I think that's what drew me to um, to do the, the APA work in general. So mm-hmm. I'm connected to everyone here because I was um, I completed my master's and doctorate um, at Western uh, Michigan University. So I studied under Jake Mallott, um as an undergrad. And uh, during my first year of master's, I studied with him as well. He encouraged me to, um, you know, check out other opportunities and really connected me with Denise Ross, uh, Dr. Denise Ross, who became my mentor as a master, uh, second-year master student, and also throughout my doctorate program. And I had lots of opportunities to work with Dr. Ross right before I entered the um, her program. So we got to know each other. I got to participate in some of the research that she was doing. And I think that's what kind of turned me on into the work of, you know, focusing on literacy and educational outcomes for children, particularly um, individuals from disadvantaged backgrounds. So that's how I got into that space. 
Um, at this time, right now, I'm working, I'm back in Kalamazoo. I've moved around a little bit. I was exploring, you know, my options. Um, wanted to know exactly where I, where I fit. So um, right now, I'm working as a Senior Director of Behavioral Health and Academics um, Success at YWCA Kalamazoo, which is a local nonprofit organization. And I'm also um, serving as the um, Executive Director of CABIS, which is um, CABIS UVK in Odyssey, um, which is a new nonprofit organization, private school that we are starting, Dr. and I are working on starting in Western, um, in Western Michigan, or in West Michigan, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. So that's where I'm at right now. Really cool. So YWCA, that sounds like a like a bit of a unique gig, right? Like, are there, are there a lot of behavior analysts working in YWCA's and YMCA's? I know there, I, I mean, I know there was, there was, there was a local, there was a local Y, I think, somewhere in Vancouver that had some kind of behavioral program, which I didn't even know those, those were happening. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you, how you, how you got to be working at the Y? That just sounds cool. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a very, that's a long story, but I'll keep it short. Okay. Um, we so I made the connection with YWCA because in my in our doctoral uh, program with Denise Ross, we serve we we actually ran a reading program, a literacy and ABA based literacy program. And in that program, we recruited heavily within the community and families who just needed that support. And that's where we did our research and service work as well. And it so happened that one of the um, children we served, his parents, is connected to the YWCA. Mm. And so when I when we're getting ready to start this school in Kalamazoo, one of the things we wanted to do is to spend time in the community providing service, building those connections, and also adding to, you know, expanding and disseminating behavior analysis in this nonprofit world. And so I reached out to YWCA. Um, I knew this individual um, there. So I reached out to them and I said, hey, you know, we're trying to do this thing. And I know you have all these educational and maternal infant programs going on. Is there any way we can build a partnership or collaborate and we could provide this service to the um, children that you serve and the families that you serve while we're preparing to um, set up our school and open our school? So that was a wonderful connection. I was able to, because they have, we have that history that's already buy-in. Um, you know, we provided behavior analytic services. We, they've seen that, um, those outcomes and literacy services. And so um, it was, you know, kind of started to negotiate and they said, Yes, bring your literacy program. Not only that, um, let's look at establishing behavior health services within YWCA and look at how we can apply behavior analysis to the classroom um, where we provide educational services in early childhood. So that's kind of how that worked out together. So everybody's connected somehow, some way, um, and you always end up where you were started. Absolutely. So that's kind of the story. Yeah. Uh, that's super cool. And is this is this uh, somewhat connected to some of the research that I've seen Margot and Denise's name on related to sort of uh, interventions for economically disadvantaged folks? Um, and 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 specifically, I don't know if it was one of those articles or not, but I I, I vaguely remember reading somewhere, and and correct me if I'm wrong, there was something about training parents who had low literacy. To teach their kids who had low literacy was was that did I, did I read that right? Yeah, so that was my dissertation actually, oh. and um, I don't think we made it quite clear, but Margaret and I came up together at Western Michigan University, so we actually started the same year okay. um, in 
Dr. Merlot's program and then also for, for doctorate. So we've been uh, together through a lot. <laughs> and yes, and so at, we've had some really awesome experiences starting practicum sites mm. um, under Dr. Ross's guidance. And it, of, of the many practicum sites we were at, um, one of them was the connection through which um, Margot is now starting the, um, the liter or has started the literacy school. It's running. It's been awesome. Um, she's totally underselling it. It's mm. so amazing. Mm. I got to volunteer a little bit over the summer to help cool. out. It's just, it's awesome. I mean, mm. we're taking, yeah, they're taking kids from the community that are already kind of at the Y receiving services and catching them back up, um, getting off base, but that's, yeah. So some of the early practicum sites, we ran one out at, at Western Michigan uh, universities out of um, one of their buildings in conjunction with their education um, department. Mm. Um, and that's where um, a lot of our research started um, in our lab that we yeah. all did together. So maybe Maya, maybe we have you back to talk about your dissertation and talk about, because I, I love that idea of teaching, of teaching parents that don't read that well to teach their kids that don't read that well. That's, that's wicked. I mean, yeah. the, the fact that you want to, and the fact that you want to use behavior analysis to save the world, it sounds like you're you're all kind of doing that because you're you're already moving outside of sort of the autism sphere and just kind of just try to help kids in, in any way you can. Yeah. So my interest really came out of, you know, we have other members in our lab. Um, we're, we're, we, we have evidence-based practices for this is what we need to do when we yeah. get kids in school, they're behind in literacy but they have all this time at home um, where they're not building that foundation of language skills. Yeah. And there are things very, uh, I mean, I would say simple things, right? Reading to your kid um, at night or reading to your kid during the day at any time, um, having books in the home, um, you know, and not just passive reading, but actively engaging. Um, Margot does a lot with motivation. So making it a positive experience and, Setting that groundwork was something that is often missing for parents who themselves struggle with literacy. And um, for me, I started doing research into looking at um, how, at least in our Kalamazoo community, we have um, our Goodwill organization had started um, a literacy program, but they weren't, I went through the training and everything. And it, of course, right, we, we know how to train people. We have the research and science behind that, um, but we don't always use it. And so um, let's not only help adults uh, gain better literacy, functional literacy skills, but also help teach them ways that they can stop that cycle of, you know, the parent struggles with literacy. So then their child is more likely to st struggle with literacy. Let's stop that cycle there so that when they come into school, that they can be better prepared and not be so far behind their peers. Super cool. Right on. Uh, I know, um, um, I think a lot of folks will recognize some of you from, um, the, uh, Sadovoy Doobie book there, um, uh, the, the scientific framework for compassion and social justice. So I just want to put a quick plug out for the, uh, uh, the interview that the three of you did with, uh, the Shades of ABA podcast, uh, a, a bit ago. Um, talking about all that stuff and in, in, in income equality and those sorts of things. We won't talk about that today, but I just want to plug that episode for folks if they want to kind of learn more from 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 you folks about about some of the good work you were doing there. Maybe uh, someone could sort of tell me 
why you 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 got together to write write this this article, the culturally relevant relevant pedagogy, did it again, and applied behavior analysis addressing educational disparities in PK to twelve schools. What was sort of the 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 reason for this article? Well, um, initially, essentially, what it was was it was a call for papers, um, a special issue by the behavior analysis and practice, mm. um, right around the time when the um, of George Floyd's death. Yes, um, and it was asking for papers uh, related to cultural relevance, um, papers related to how to address social injustice. Um, how to address things like systemic racism, uh, police brutality, and other areas of interest regarding um, disparities for underrepresented minorities in the United States. Um, so, you know, part of that, uh, you know, starts with education, the educational system, um, teachers and children interactions, interaction with children, how they're brought up, and literacy being um, an issue of social justice. Um, you know, it's necessary to be able to read, to be able to um, communicate in that way to make your way through the world. Hmm. Um, there was a time when, you know, it was against the law for African-Americans to learn how to read in this country. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is a form of so uh, social justice to just be educated. And that's something right. that is highly valuable and highly valued in a lot of black families and immigrant families. Um, and to see that there is such a discrepancy between, um, between the uh, achievement between um, underrepresented groups and, um, you know, the majority population in this country mm. is an issue of social justice. So um, so we wanted to address that and we wanted to talk about ways that um, that could be addressed, considering that the majority of teachers are female and white and don't necessarily um, reflect their students. Right? right. With the diverse population, that they're not as diverse as the students that they serve. Um, so that being the case, a lot of things that are culturally relevant to their students are not always integrated into the curriculum. Um, and so we wanted to address how those things could be done. And so we went about looking at, you know, what makes um, teachers um, who, um, teachers of students of underrepresented groups, specifically black children, um, successful in their mm. teaching um, and how that could be partnered with evidence-based strategies and tactics from applied behavior analysis in order to do that. So that's how we came together on, you know, culturally relevant pedagogy, um, Gloria Latson-Billings and her um, research in that, the seminal research in that, and put that together with the strategies and tactics of applied behavior analysis in order to build a framework in which uh, something could be successful within the educational system to address the issues and the disparities in reading um, outcomes for students. Right on. You you talk about um, literacy a, a bit there. Um, now, I, I, I kind of know the answer to some of this stuff, but I, I want to ask anyway for the listeners. I had uh, 
uh, Mae Bulburn on, and before that, Dr. Nicole Hollins, and they talked a lot about sort of a lot of the issues in schools, and I sure encourage folks to go back to those to hear some more. But what what are sort of uh, literacy is certainly uh, probably one of the biggest ones. What are some of the other kind of sort of disparities in the school system that that sort of you know call for something like this? I can answer that, or at yeah. least start it off. So, sure. are you looking to up your organization's governance game? Or maybe you need support to design interventions that have long-term sustainability. The British Columbia Association for Behavior Analysis will be hosting their 15th annual conference on March 3rd and 4th. The first day will be two virtual keynote sessions from Dr. Ramona Homanfar, who will be speaking on values-based governance. And Louis Bush with a presentation on designing function-based treatments that withstand the test of time. Remember, these will be virtual keynotes so you can attend from anywhere around the world. If you're going to be in Vancouver that weekend, BC ABBA's second day will feature live presentations from local presenters, a poster session, and multiple network opportunities. For more information and to register, go to www.bcaba.org and click on the Events tab. That's bc-aba.org. Hope to see you there. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is literacy. I currently work um, in, with the Institute for Urban Education at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Mm. Um, and we um, try, we're charged with helping to address disparities within Wisconsin schools, okay. um, particularly disparities in school districts where there's a um, there's a there's a difference in the racial demographic of the teachers compared to the students, as as Amoy was saying, and the mm. ways in which that plays itself out in disproportionality. Mm. Um, for instance, there are nine school districts right now that have such high levels of disproportionality that children who are from historically marginalized groups um, have tend to be taught by people who are long term subs. And those types of things. And so they're not getting what they need. Now that's worse for everybody post-COVID. Mm -hmm. But before COVID, it was really true for these districts. So um, we had to look at systems and what systems, how does disproportionality show itself up in education systems, show up in education systems? And then which systems could we, could we target? So literacy is definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. Gifted education is another one. Um, black and brown students are, are underrepresented in gifted education. Um, you see it in STEM fields, um, whether it's through race or gender. Um, discipline is a um, black and brown students are disproportionately um, they are they are disciplined at levels and rates that are much higher than mm. other groups um, and, and it, it, it actually becomes very it becomes a civil rights issue um, for them um, mm. and so um, those are some of the areas that you see I think you see it with black boys so a lot of the issues that you see are things that where they are discriminated against through school systems. Yeah. Um, and so those are some of the systems. And special ed is another one. There's overrepresentation of black and brown children in special ed. And mm. so those are well known, um, but those are some of the ways that you see it show up in, in schools. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Um, so 
so I guess so, yeah, and that's that. So I, the discipline stuff I've heard a lot about. Uh, you know, I've heard a lot about, and, and there's been some interesting kind of recent studies I think on this sort of thing. You know, things like um, um, uh, you know even sort of people not even answering folks when they raise their hand. You know, or or uh, you know, or people you know making noise in the classroom and it's always the black students being called called out for doing it while the white students you know are being called out those sorts of things what's sort of the and, and that's definitely a, a, a big problem and 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 it seems like more of an obvious one what are sort of some of the barriers to that keep students like this out of certain like out of like out of like a gifted program or out of like a stem stem program uh, what's sort of the reason for for that is that um, literacy probably is one um um but, but are, are there others well i think they're not even if they even if black children and white children are identical in their ability identical in their preparation identical in their performance the presence of bias often mm. stops people from having access so in gifted education for instance they're not tested for gifted education. Uh, if they're in schools that have high poverty, even those programs aren't even available for them. Mm. Um, and even thinking about advanced placement classes, they're not often identified for them. And so it's kind of this, the presence of bias really has a place in a lot yes. of systems. You see it in medicine, you see it in healthcare, and this right. is true in education that even, I wouldn't, yes, there are children who are because of a system not learning to read as behavior analysts, we know there's nothing wrong with the kids, right? Mm -hmm. They're brilliant kids. The system is broken. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it is that there's by the presence of bias and it has to be acknowledged in the ways in which access to these types of programs, gifted education, for instance, STEM, um, AP classes are not available. And even if they are, they're overlooked. Mm. Sorry, uh, and this is just maybe me and my lack of school knowledge. What's an AP class? <laughs> Advanced placement. Oh, so I an see, advanced I see. placement. So, how do you get into? How do you end up becoming a doctor? Right, mm. if you don't get to take those classes that place you in places that can make you competitive mm. later on. Um, and so, if they're if they don't have access to them, either because they're not available or because they are overlooked, even mm. in the presence of all being equal to everyone else economically and in terms of education, there's still bias for Black and Brown students. So. Wow. Wow. And I think before we even, you know, even before they enter school, a lot of these issues are already present for within the community. Mm. Um, and so parents don't have access to educational, um, you know, quality education. They don't have access to, you know, maybe they live in um, communities where they're dealing with a lot, a lot of poverty. Um, and that's often impacted by systemic barriers that are in place that are mm. limiting the resources that they have. So by the time the children are experiencing this in school systems, these biases, they've actually already experienced it even before they enter school. Um, and so it's one of those, I think, issues where if it's not addressed far in advance from the beginning in early childhood, in preschool, in kindergarten, and really ensuring that, um, you know, children are receiving culturally relevant, um, you know, instructional strategies and literacy mm. empowerment, then you're going to continue to experience those barriers. And I think the trajectory kind of worsens over time throughout those experiences. So I think there's sort of this relationship. It's not just isolated within schools. It's that individuals enter schools and they've already experienced um, those things. And now they also have to deal with it within schools. And so there's a lot for them to overcome to be able to access 
um, you know, resources later on. The other issue is with that, um, you know, when we're talking about bias, you know, and oftentimes, you know, it is not uh, at the surface. It's not something that is um, mm -hmm. that is recognized, right. you know. You don't always recognize your own biases, right? Because it's not that you say, oh, I don't think the black student is bright. Mm -hmm. It's just that when it comes time for different opportunities, um, you don't necessarily say, hey, why don't you test for gifted or why mm -hmm. don't you test for advanced placement um, in terms of offering those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have parents or people around you or in your community that can advocate for those things, right. um, it's, you know, then you don't really, you can't you do that on your own, right? So in terms of being um, self-determined. So there's a whole idea of behind culturally relevant pedagogy is that it involves the community that the person mm. is in. It involves being sociopolitically aware of how, um, how the outside affects, you know, affects everything for the child, right? Mm. So, you know, we often talk about the uh, cross collaboration with others and looking at them as not just uh, looking at the client or the person in front of us and dealing with just what we see, but getting that input from all of the different people that work with them and putting together a whole picture in order to be able to uh, provide effective interventions for them, right? And that's, you know, what we're looking at in terms of culturally relevant pedagogy. It's involving the community. It's involving the parents. Mm. It's looking at their them in a historical context in their family, in the community, and in the school. So those are part of the issues and how they need to be addressed in a, in order to move forward with these, um, uh, to have better outcomes. Some of the other concerns or issues around this is not just about um, race as a culture, but also disability. Um, so you think about a lot of the students that we work with in the population of neurodivergent students, autistic, ADHD, et cetera, um, oftentimes the fact that they have such scattered skills uh, and may be able to do some things well and not others, or that they're inconsistent, right, With which is big in ADHD, uh, things like that. You don't consider testing children like that for gifted. And if they engage in certain behaviors um, that function to gain attention or to escape difficult um, situations or when they're feeling overwhelmed, then you would, what is seen, what is visible and observable is the behavior. Mm. But what is not observable is necessarily is that lack of working memory, that inability to self-regulate, that the fact that they didn't sleep, eat, or drink enough, right? Yep. Um, so what ends up happening is due to those biases, right, whether um, not acknowledged or you know, not even known to the individual, they become labeled as a behavioral problem. Yep. And the diagnoses that they end up getting in special education become more aligned with conduct disorder, oppositional defiance disorder. And what happens is you end up sometimes with misdiagnoses or not getting to the fact that especially children with ADHD are often have many comorbid disorders. So you miss things like anxiety. Yep depression, you miss things like a learning disability, like dyscalculia, right, mm. for math, or, you know, dyslexia. So 
you and what ends up happening is the ball stops at behavior. Mm-hmm. And then they don't get the other types of interventions that are necessary to improve literacy skills, to improve mm-hmm. math skills. Um, and then those opportunities then um, decrease. And over time, what was a disorder becomes a disability. Mm-hmm. So what was something small becomes an overall effect over time, left untreated, becomes much more um, difficult to overcome, uh, makes your life more dysfunctional, makes it more difficult to navigate um, in the world, right? And then Mm. your learning history for those behaviors becomes more difficult to overcome as each year goes by untreated or not having a full picture, which Mm. is why it's so important to collaborate with others in and outside of our field. Yeah, I can totally relate on to that one. Uh, just uh, being an ADHD kid, but only I wasn't diagnosed till I was in my forties. Same. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I, you know, I was definitely the behavior kid. Uh, I was in some special ed. I didn't really know why. I remember doing some stuff with a speech path once to stop to stop lisping. Um, but um, yeah, definitely, you know, uh, none of those things. My working memory issues. Uh, you know, my my poor grades, my anxiety, a crazy anxiety, uh, right up until around age 45. And once once the once I got medicated, it all kind of went away, but um, well, not all of it. Uh, but uh uh yeah, I know I could totally I could totally uh, see that totally being being a piece. I was wondering before we kind of get in, in into the sort of the meat of the article, um you had mentioned also. I think Denisia mentioned the sort of the disparity, not disparity, the sort of the disproportionality around um, um, sort of teachers and the students sort of so that a lot of the teachers are essentially are white teachers um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the students are not um, is I know this this paper doesn't really doesn't really kind of cover this area, but is is there work being done to kind of address that as well, sort of getting more representation in terms of the the teachers themselves? I definitely think that there is a big push in education to try and have an increase in the number of teacher diverse, amount of diversity in teaching. It's Mm. a, it's a really large push. Almost everyone you talk to is talking, there are lots of people that talk about that. So I think that there is, um, teaching right now is a hard field. You know, people are leaving because mm-hmm. of the pressures they felt since COVID. Yes. And um, it's really hard to get anybody to stay right now. It's hard for mm-hmm. people to stay in public education, it's in, which is where a lot of our kids would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's a challenge right now. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a big conversation that's happening. And I don't think anybody really has um, an answer to it. It is definitely um, an issue of, you know, where students are coming from. So you need to start much earlier, high school, middle school, with getting to students and say and exposing them to positive experiences mm-hmm. um, in education for them to come. There's a big, there's just a, a large disparity in diversity. So, um, yeah, that's a really good question, and I don't have an answer to it. I just yeah. think that it's a problem that lots of people are trying to address. Well, I'd even consider sort of the whole, I mean, I'm not in education, but I didn't even consider the whole COVID thing and and how that's really, I mean, that's pushed folks out of a lot of different jobs in a lot of different fields, for sure. I mean, the great, the great, what is it, what is it called? Resignation. Resignation. The great resignation. resignation. 
um, you know, of, of, of everything. And, and certainly, you know, the, the pressures of trying to do online learning and all these other crazy things and, and sort of dealing with medical things. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. It's sort of, you know, you're trying to sort of, cause I, I was, I was sort of thinking more about sort of just the systems, you know, HR systems and whatnot and all the bias embedded in those to not even hire folks you know, from, from sort of diverse backgrounds. But if you're not even getting applicants, then that's got to be, you know. Well, they're craziness. being hired. They're being hired. There's a man named Curtis Jones. Um, he has a, he does research in this area. So, mm. um, and he talks about how they're hired. So school districts hire, you know, teachers, diverse teachers. But what happens is within the process of evaluating them, um, in the process of doing the things that retain them. So they don't mm. often have mentors. The, the work of, um, I have to remember her name. I'll try and look it up before we get off, sure. the, phone, off the podcast. But um, they, Linda Darling Hammond, Linda Darling Hammond um, out of California talks a lot about this and how um, you, you know, they don't work on issues of retention. So they need mentors when they come in those first couple years of teaching, you need a lot of support. But what Curtis Jones has found is that in the evaluation process, when a white administrator comes in and evaluates a teacher of color, they evaluate them at, in a much stricter way than they do other people. Wow. And as a result of that, they end up pushing them out of those places through the evaluation. And also teachers, teachers, black, I call them teachers from the global majority, black and brown teachers are often um, also given the students who have the worst behavior issues. So they're given students. So there's already bias in schools where children um, who are black and brown are placed in classrooms for special ed more often than other mm -hmm. kids are. Mm -hmm. They're disciplined more. So then they get put into the classrooms of black and brown teachers who then oh. feel very frustrated. So then you have, and so these are things that Curtis Jones has documented. Linda Darling yeah. Hammond has the whole report on it. Um, yeah. And so they're within the systems that should retain teachers is bias and built into those practices. I'll say practices that are biased. We don't know what people think. We just know what they do. Mm. Um, and those practices result in a lack of retention. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that, that, yeah, that's probably the answer I was kind of expecting. Um, <laughs> uh, lots and lots of systems problems here. Um, yeah. Um, and that seems to be. And I think I kind of want to add to that a little bit. I think some of the things we've seen um, lately is sort of an elevation around culturally responsive teaching, um, you know, and I think that's where we can address while we're waiting to see, you know, can we develop systems that are less biased, that are inclusive, um, culturally responsive practices and teaching That's I think, the other piece that we can elevate and implement within schools so that even if we never get to the place where, you know, the teachers and the students have the same backgrounds, at least the teachers are in place and in charge of the curricula and the educational piece are aware of, you know, and respectful and um, look at the cultures of the children who are who they're serving. And also they're looking at the students through a strength-based model as opposed to... Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me okay? Is this better? Yeah. Just, just yeah. to follow up on what Margo was saying, though, that's Please, the premise yeah. of, Gloria, of Gloria Latson Building's work. So she was at UW-Madison. Okay. And was trying to address some of the same issues we're talking about. And one of the things she said when she developed this framework was, we can't wait until we have a more diverse teaching force. Yes, we're reaching mm -hmm. for that. And there is research showing that all students benefit from having a teacher of color, right? Mm -hmm. Curtis Jones' work shows that. But she says, until that time, we got to prep, get rid of people ready who are already there. And so that's why she developed this framework. One of mm -hmm. the reasons that we wrote in the, about in the article, because 
she wanted to help teachers know how do, how can you be successful when you're teaching children? Um, and she focused on African-American children. And this framework has now been applied to people with disabilities and all kinds of different um, pe- pe- set, groups within education who are recipients of education. But um, yeah, that was her rationale. So Margo, I think that's spot on what you're saying in terms of having to prepare the people who are already there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I mean, no, please. that in behavior analysis as well, right? Because it's this, those same issues are not excluded. It's not that, you know, ABA as a field, we're not above, you know, way above some of those same issues. Like, I think we deal with some of the same things. And that's why mm-hmm. I think at this point in time, we're talking a little bit more about culturally re- relevant practices and how do we prepare individuals to, um, to work with diverse learners um, and to really look at their culture and their context. And, you know, so I think there's that, and that's part of where ABA and education is such a huge sort of area where we can work together to uh, push the work forward, both in both fields and together. Yeah, and part of that, the, the interesting thing is, I just want to add to that, the interesting mm-hmm. thing is that for all of our desire to do that, we unfortunately live in a political climate that is mm. working against that, right? Mm. We have the vocal minority or yeah. sometimes now majority in certain places mm. that are working to, um, you know, to basically uh, spin this myth, right? That culturally relevant pedagogy is somehow trying to shame white people Mm. into you know feeling guilty and responsible for all the woes of the world okay um facing your historical past is not the same thing as people trying to guilt and shame you um you know and the other side of that is that it's really about recognizing your own personal biases based on your own cultural identity right mm. everyone has um conscious and unconscious bias yes Period. And it's not always about um, race either. People have a lot of unconscious and conscious bias against mental health issues, uh, against getting help for those issues, um, against disabilities, you know, how they perceive different types of disabilities. Um, You know, even working with teachers, providing some training around that, um, you know, there was one particular disability that we brought up and they had so many questions and so many like judgments. And I had to, you know, bring up to them, well, why is that? Why do you think that is? Mm. And we had to work through that and what questions you might ask yourself and what experiences you may have had that make you feel and question so much around this particular issue. And those are the kinds of things that we need to be doing in order to overcome that when we're working with people of different cultures. Um, and very specifically in these cases with Black children, because we have such a high disparity with prison rates, with uh, brutality, police brutality, and death rates in this country. And mm. not just boys, but girls and women. The mm. rates for girls and women and the treatment of them in schools and by police is growing by leaps and bounds mm. in terms of how their interactions and their negative interactions with authority wow. figures. So, you know, this is really important on so many levels across so many systems. Um, so, you know, these are things that behavior analysis can address 
Um, mm-hmm. We've, you know, started to scratch the surface in reading and literacy education mm-hmm. and schools. Um, but there are many areas that this can apply. And I can I just, say, sorry, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. I was just going to say that um, one thing that hit me when, so when I came to UW Milwaukee, they asked us to do a, an evaluation, kind of to incorporate culturally relevant pedagogy into our work because it is such a huge part of what happens in um, Wisconsin and Gloria Latson Billings was at UW Madison at the time. And um, I remember thinking, I don't know that changing people's attitudes change their behavior, changes their behaviors. Mm. Um, as a behavior analyst, it's hard for me to think that if I go in and I, and I help someone, anyone address their attitude and I measure that in some way, whatever we're measuring, like, are you racist? Are you not Correct. by your attitude, by your self-report? If I change what you say about yourself, how you perform on some measure, it doesn't necessarily mean my behaviors will change. The same is true in classrooms. When all everybody was like, I want to be anti-racist, that's great. It should happen. We need to interrogate our own our, our own bias. We need to be thinking mm. about our own attitudes. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily make you a better person to teach someone to read. If at the mm. end of the day, if you're if you perform better on a measure of bias, but your kids leave your classroom, they still cannot read. Mm. We have not done anything. <laughs> um, and I, I strongly believe it has. And so that's why I think behavior analysts really can add value to this is that we're not just looking at behavior. We're looking I mean, at attitude. We're looking at behavior mm. and culturally relevant pedagogy differs from culturally responsive pedagogy in that culturally relevant pedagogy by the way that it was intended was to empower the kids to survive a system that was not built for them. So when you're teaching them to be social, to have know their culture in someone else's cultural competence, you're teaching them. I'm not. Moy was saying like people's perspectives on, you know, feeling guilty and things like that. I'm like, forget that. Teach the kids their culture. Teach mm. black children their history accurately. Teach Hispanic children their their history accurately. So that they're empowered to survive a system that tells them that they're not beautiful, that tells them that they're not brilliant. And so I think it's really important to understand that that's what that meant where culturally responsive pedagogy is about what the teacher does in to, to prepare themselves. And that's different. We want to empower mm. kids. We want kids to be strong and healthy so they can be successful in a system that pushes against them. And then we also want to focus on behaviors, not just attitude, in my opinion. The second secret word is Frisbee. Yeah, and a good question for that is, what is the difference between noncompliance and self-advocacy? Mm. You know, that's one line that people always ask, you know, that people are starting to ask the question more. And I ask behavior analysts, you know, I'm currently the clinical director for infinity behavior. And that's a question that whenever I read a behavior plan now, it's what is the difference between noncompliance and um, and um, self-advocacy? And, you know, there's a difference between task, you know, task refusal and, you know, straight up noncompliance, like I'm not going to do that. I won't do that. And so on versus, you know, um, not doing a task, but where's that line, right? At what point do you have to allow people to be, um, you know, autonomous people with their own agency? And oftentimes, you know, I I think that we will label someone as noncompliant based on our own personal bias. If they have a disability, they're non-compliant. If they are, you know, black, maybe they're non-compliant. If they have, you know, a nose ring or tattoos, they're non-compliant. Yep. 
versus, you know, if they're, you know, if they're your friend's child or if, you know, they're your favorite student in class, you know, they're self-advocating, you know? So mm. there has to be some place mm. for be self for self-advocating, for um, mm. you know, uh for saying no um and allowing that. And also at what point does that so-called, you know, quote, non-compliance actually equate to lack of consent or mm -hmm. assent mm -hmm. to certain interventions and procedures. So a lot of these things have to be taken in consideration within that lens of cultural um, awareness and yeah. cultural sensitivity and individual instructional histories. Um, so this is why it's so important to understand the individual and the culture of the people that you work with. Um, you know, one person's compliment is another person's microaggression, right? Mm. So, you know, and so it is, it is, you know, kind of, it is our responsibility to know the people that we serve, you know, um, and to be curious and to ask the question rather than assume, you know, and that goes for gender, that goes for disability, that goes yeah. for race, that, you know, all of those things. You know, if you want to be effective in anything you do, you have to start at that point, you know, um, and acknowledge your own bias. You know, everyone has them. I've got plenty of them. And at certain points, I have to think to myself, even when I respond in certain ways to my own child, like, whoa, you know, am I projecting here? You know, what am I doing here? Why am I so bothered by this? Mm. Right. Um, and put that back on myself to ask myself the question as opposed to what they're doing. They shouldn't do that. They should know how to do right. something. Uh, and rather ask the question, why am I so bothered by this? You know, why am I finding this so frustrating? You know, um, and th that gets to better answers um, to make me better able to handle those situations than uh, being frustrated in those situations and possibly being a more effective practitioner, a more effective teacher, a more effective mentor. Um, so those things, you know, I think come out of a desire to be better for, you know, the people we serve uh, rather than this idea of, well, you know, I'm not going to be forced to change my behavior or who I mm. am. And what to piggyback off what uh, Denise was saying, um, you know, we don't think our way into behaving. I think I want to be, you know, lose 50 pounds all the time, but we behave to me, we behave our way into thinking. So if I do this small thing, Reg on a regular basis, then I can look back and reflect and say, oh, I think that actually worked, you know, mm. because now I can see the result of my behavior. And that's when the thinking can, an attitude can change. Mm. Right. So I, I think that's, you know, that's something, there's something to be said for, for that. Mm -hmm. um, I interrupted Margot. So I didn't, I'm sorry, Margot. I didn't want to interrupt you. So, and poor Maya, I don't, she didn't know, get a so word sorry, edgewise so. over there. <laughs> oh, it's totally fine. I think you, you definitely um, summarized a lot better what I, I was thinking and what I wanted to say. So you made the point. Of it. Hmm. You know, Amoy, it's, it, it's interesting, uh, something in particular, uh, all of it, definitely, 
really interesting. But one thing you said that kind of has stuck with me for a few moments is is this idea that uh, topographically a behavior can look the same and yet be labeled completely different because of the bias. And so that, you know, one student is self-advocating and one student is not compliant and they're both doing the same thing. That's that's just that's just something I, I never even thought of in terms of, you know, applying the bias in that way. Hmm. Yeah. OK, so. I, I, I everyone was apologizing because Maya didn't get a word in. So, Maya, maybe, maybe uh, you could 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 jump in here and, and and tell me a little bit more about what sort of this culturally relevant pedagogy. I see it's goji, not gaji. Thank you for 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 the pronunciation uh actually is tomato tomato that's right <laughs> i'm i'm great i'm uh this is there are so many great amazing women here that mm. i everyone and i mean we've all worked um together now for a bit so it's it's no need to, to get my word in there but um you know i i say pedagogy but i do hear people say pedagogy <laughs> I don't, I, I've never Googled the pronunciation. I don't know if anyone here feels 100% confident. Um, but I would personally like to defer to Denise on this because okay. um, I think she, this is Dr. Ladison Billings was also at uh, University of Wisconsin, correct? Um, yeah. And I just feel like this is your wheelhouse for sure. Fair enough, fair it's enough. It's not my wheelhouse, but I can describe it. But you probably, you, probably brought it, you probably brought it to everybody initially, I guess. Right. We, what I was going to say, because I struggled when I got there with how does this fit into being a behavior analyst? Mm. So they were like, you know, do this work. And I just thought, where do we fit? And it was um, through one of the tenets that she talks about that I'll just describe that I saw where we could fit. And then over time saw how behavior analysis could actually be used to shift certain um, behaviors that we were seeing in schools. But so Gloria Latson Billings was concerned about how, um, but black children in particular were framed negatively mm. in literature. So when you talked about them, when they were written about, they were talked about um, as their deficits, right? So they, mm. through a deficit lens, not that they had deficits, but that's how they were described. So they right. were described as having only so many of black children read this many black children have and it have negative behaviors and it was very negative and so mm -hmm. she said in her book I, I mean I learned this from reading about it she said that um she wanted to change that narrative change that framework so she began to look at teachers and trace what they were doing and she went to a school that were black students were performing had you know the black students were performing well and she looked at a cohort of I think it was eight teachers and she just did a qualitative study of their work, a deep longitudinal study. What are they doing that's making their children in their classroom succeed? And what she found was that there were three areas. Number one, they ensured that their students had academic excellence. They didn't lower the standards. They kept the standards high, but they also gave them, empowered the students to meet those standards. Number two was that one of the other areas was that the students had what she called cultural confidence. What she meant by that was that they knew their own culture and someone else's culture. Really what she meant was that they knew their culture and they knew the larger dominant culture because to survive, they had to have both. And then the third one was that they had sociopolitical awareness. They could interpret the events around them um, 
through their own lenses. So if something happened in the world, they could talk about it in the classroom. And with looking at those three areas, she um, concluded that this, the group of teachers she worked with, that's what they did to ensure that their that Black children were succeeding. Um, and then it it really took off and it became a national, people adopted this nationally. Mm. Um, and then I, if you read through literature on it, you've seen it applied to lots of different groups, different um, racial groups from different racial ethnic backgrounds, um, different groups, like I'm always saying with disabilities. Um, and so it, it became a way to positively frame, do what they call an assets, an asset-based description, not one that's based mm. on deficits of the children who previously were not. And her, her big goal, as I said before, was to empower the kids to survive the system. So how do you mm -hmm. empower them to be successful um, in a system that sometimes comes is not supportive of them? Well, can can you can you break down the sort of three components? I, I just thought these were the coolest things I've ever read. These the the, the three components of the CRP. But, but maybe if you could just sort of explain it for the listeners. Sure, I'll try, and then anybody can jump in. Yeah. So academic excellence, um, as I said, was that they would be children who could perform well in school and do well and and, and be successful in school, um, and so that you didn't have that description of an achievement gap, right? These children were able to succeed academically. Um, sociopolitical awareness, it was that they could look at events in the world and then interpret them for themselves. So for instance, if you had um, something happen in another country, they could connect that back to their own community. Um, and then um, cultural competence was them being made, knowing their own culture and um, exposing them to their own culture and then also making sure that they knew how to navigate the culture that required them to survive the school mm. system. Yeah. These seem like really big areas for maybe a little guy um, or gal. Uh, is this something that's starting like in, like it says PK to 12. So is this stuff you're doing in kindergarten? Well, part My, of it is, go ahead, Denise. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say part of it is, you know, it's like the prerequisites to being able to do these things, right? Mm. I mean, <clears throat> at certain, you know, we talk a lot of times about, um, especially for, you know, for Black families and for, you know, other underrepresented groups, having the talk, right? Mm. And which is like, at what point you have to talk about the dangers of the world, kind uh, of yes. how you may be looked at differently by police, mm -hmm. how you may have to carry yourself a little differently in certain neighborhoods because you may be um, uh, profiled or considered a danger to others, right? Yes. Uh, if you're in a group of friends, like how you have to conduct yourself. Mm. So some of those things are naturally happening in the households right. of, uh, of course, children yeah. already at very young ages. Yeah, I guess and so. And part of that is what sets up that sociopolitical awareness. It's understanding mm. Uh, and making explicit those power dynamics in mainstream society. Mm. You know, the police have a power, it's a power dynamic between them and the so-called citizenry that they serve, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, they, you know, we learned that they're not there and they actually had to remove these mottos on the side of their cars uh, to serve and protect mm. because that's actually not their job. Their job is to, you know, arrest criminals, yeah. um, you know, and enforce the law. Um, so, you know, there are times when they do not have to take action 
Um, so, so some of those things are, you know, build that baseline awareness of the world around them. Mm. And they start to understand those dynamics in their own culture and the dominant culture and how those things are different. Okay. Um, so those are some of the things that, you know, from a young age start to be revealed through everyday experiences and gotcha. then through the discussions that are had at home and through their observations in their family units and their, mm. in their, um, you know, and then their um, neighborhoods sometimes, right? Mm. And and if they're not, they come into contact with that at some point, it may be delayed, right? But intentionally having these conversations or um, talking about this, you know, helps to empower students um, to understand um, these dynamics. And then drawing those um, together with in historical context and with different cultures in different parts of the world and, you know, what's happening uh, around the world, uh, politically, socially, like Russia and Ukraine or different things like that helps them to understand and see those and connect with that yes. information and, and connect it to how similar or different it is to their own experience. Mm. And those connections is what leads to academic excellence. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it allows for more scaffolding, it allows for more clarifying right. of the curriculum. Mm. It allows for those real world connections to the information that they're learning in class, which then provides the motivation to learn. Because mm. um, if you can connect with something, you're more you find the subject matter more interesting. You're more connected to it. You know, you're more invested in it. Mm. But if it has and you don't see any relevance to your own life or your own world experience, the motivation is not there. And we know specifically for, you know, certain kids, especially like us neurodivergents with ADHD, you know, they are, we already have diminished motivation, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so that also helps for children with different, you know, with disabilities and who are challenged through being, you know, neurodivergent and are lacking some of those things already. So when you're making all of these connections, it helps to increase the academic excellence. And you're looking from that strength, you know, what they do well, as opposed to constantly criticizing, um, you know, those things also lead to, you know, improvements and more effective teaching and better outcomes. Mm. Mm. Ben, can I just jump in for a Not, I just want to toss this back to Maya and Marco for a moment, but I was yeah. thinking about in the article some of the ways we connected uh, behavior analysis to culturally relevant pedagogy. So I'm wondering, um, so Amoy was talking about how we look through an asset lens, and I wonder if there are aspects of behavior analysis like approval. You know, are there things that we naturally do with kids that lend themselves to some of the goals that Gloria Letts and Billings had? I'm just curious now. Um, I think we did a little bit of that in our article. We did, and I kind of I'm the last author on purpose because I was not as engaged, with it, which is why I'm bringing, which is why I'm bringing this up. Okay, I thought and they I'm did the a great job. Author, which is why I'm talking I, so much. No, I missed the question. I'm so sorry. I just said, you know, I'm curious about if you guys see if you guys have opinions, if anybody has opinions about how behavior analysis can kind of align itself with CRP. That was, that's mm. why, what I was challenged with when, yeah. in doing this. And we actually fleshed it out in this paper and I was so glad for it. 
So I'm just wondering um, what you guys think. I think one of the, I'm not going to take the motivation piece because Mar- Dr. Margot owns that one, but I'll talk about something that I I personally um, I connected with and still use practices for today in my, in my teaching, um, positive behavior supports and how important it is um, just having, you know, clear expectations, um, you know, targeted um, evidence-based instruction that we know is high quality instruction for the majority of the classroom, especially when we're looking for uh, targeting the academic excellence piece, academic achievement, um, and connecting material specifically to current events, what's happening in the world, things that um, specifically relate to things that are meaningful to the students. Um, Self-management, I think, is a big one also, right? We see Hmm. oftentimes um, students struggle not necessarily because they don't have the capability um, to complete an assignment, but because it's hard, harder because a lot of students that I I at least work with, um, they, they have a job, they have families, they have life, life events, multiple jobs even. And so it's about helping to um, teach them ways to organize their time and be more successful and um, strategies for even studying um, is a, is a big one. So I think, for me personally, I see this manifest in um, positive behavior supports and even response to intervention, that type mm. of um, conceptualizing, targeting the success of all students by using that high quality evidence-based instruction um, that the majority of students will respond to and then providing additional supports and attention um, for students that that don't, um, that may need, that may, may need them. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, I um, I have two sort of two thoughts. You asked earlier about you know application of this work within you know how early do you start? When yeah. do you start talking yeah. about some of these? Yeah, yeah. I um in some of the work I'm doing, I, I, I uh, we had a couple. We have some uh, preschoolers that we're working with in the literacy program, and some of our children have experienced just lots of you know adverse, you know, ex- they have adverse experiences from you know the within the community and so yeah. on. And a lot of that shows up with them when they enter the room. Um, now, uh, we're with them, mm. you know, like two hours a day, not a long time, not together all day. But I think the environment, the class space, maybe we've created a safe space enough to where when they enter the room and some things have happened in the community and to them, mm. it's evident. And I see it in the way that they're engaging. In the community, as opposed to saying, you know, well, what's going on with this kid? There are lots of things being in tune with the cultural context of an individual will really actually kind of tell you some motive, you know, setting events, some motivating operations that might, or is that, you know, abolishing operations that may be in place that may explain why the behaviors are occurring. So I think really taking time to look at the full context, mm-hmm. um, even in preschool, I have some kids who come in and say, hey, I saw this person get shot and this, that, and that happened. Yeah. Six-year-olds. Wow. And they're expressing that, well, my mom, you know, my parent passed away mm-hmm. and you know, so, mm. and so you're in the classroom and you can't shut something like that down. This no. is the experience the individual has at the moment and it yeah. impacts what they're doing or able to do, how motivated they are. And so I think really helping them to connect to the world um, and understanding why is this happening? Why am I being treated this way? All of these things come up um, mm. in the classroom. And I think there are, when you create a space where the children are able to express that, you can then be responsive and address it, modify what you're teaching, how you're teaching to be able to address some of those things and teach that self-advocacy 
teach those social skills to be able to have, you know, strong language and description and discussion about things that are happening. So I don't think there's like a time where it's too early. Um, now, if you have, you know, limited verbal repertoire, that's sort of a different story. But I think you can start as early as things are happening for that individual. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I think maybe the other thought in terms of how ABA can align with um, CRP in general is where it's, I think right now in the field, really looking at culture and look at it, looking at the importance of culture, the role that culture plays within um, behavioral practices and treatment yes. planning and target selection. Um, so I think that's another huge thing that we really have to tune into as a field and that we can learn from um, education and, you know, attending to the importance of that, showing, demonstrating that we have respect for that culture, but also empowering our clients and our families to celebrate their culture, right? Mm-hmm. So wherever you're from, you don't, I don't have to choose targets just because these are what, you know, Western norms dictate are the targets. I can choose targets based on the values of the home, the culture of the home, and that you mm-hmm. all as a family can implement and support. And so I think there's lots of things we can do um, and learn from um, education and how they, you know, apply to CRP in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really. Really interesting. Wondering about, so yesterday I interviewed um, uh, Dr. Intarachot Van Etten, uh, Nissa, about uh, culturally responsive um, ABA. Um, And we were talking about, uh, you know, how there's, there's definitely a place for, you know, sort of kind of broad cultural norms and educating in kind of that area, but that, you know, you know, no, no black family is the same or or no Latino family is the same. Right. You know? And so to sort of, you know, make, you've got to be really careful not to make assumptions about each family, you know, again, you're, it's a bias, even if, even if you think it's going in a good way, it could be a bias. Uh, by sort of you know you applying these broad broader norms to the individual, how do you sort of address that in in something like this where you're 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 trying to sort of create a you know a, a climate a system you know in a school where you know you're teaching kids these sorts of things are you are you you know are you interviewing families and and those sorts of things to sort of you know get those individual sort of kind of culture pieces from the home so you can bring them into the school like how does that work i think i think because we spent a lot of time learning about we're, aba has been putting a lot of papers out on culture and culture responsive and, and i think there's i said this yesterday there's like seven or eight terms now that all start with culture you know from humility to safety <laughs> to competence to awareness to responsiveness uh to relevant um and uh and and I know I'm I, I'm also kind of making it a mission to you know to try to interview someone from every country in the planet, uh, but you know is is that a wasted mission to interview one person from Botswana? Because um, uh, I did I interviewed one person from Botswana. Um, um, if uh, everybody in Botswana is different, um, sort of thing. And so uh, it's a two part question: one, selfish, am I wasting my time interviewing someone from every country? Uh, and two. You know, um, you know, how do how do we sort of how do you how do you individualize this this pedagogy? Um, you know, how does that all work? 
I just saw Margo do a great talk the other day on something <laughs> like this. I'm hoping she'll talk about her work and her assessments and everything. Mm. Uh, well, I guess one, you can now say you've also interviewed someone from Rwanda. Um, so that, and it, that could be a little take on your, um, on the work that you're trying to do. But um, I don't think it's a waste to say that you're interviewing a person from a, a certain country or culture. The reality is we all, even within the Black community, even within the Hispanic community, you're going to find subcultures. You're yeah. going to find lots of different things that people do. Diff, you know what I mean? So um, I don't think it's a waste. I think you can give your general understanding, maybe over region in some mm. cases, mm-hmm. um, right? It can give you an idea. Mm. But I do think it's important to really individualize and yes, assess each individual that you are. You will never go and create a treatment plan without having assessed all Mm. hopefully <laughs> right yeah. without having done your SEA, without understanding you know context, you know contextual things that are going on with the individual right. you wouldn't do that because then that's not now you may not you have i think it's important to also be practical um i don't think you need to do 20 different assessments about your culture and your values and stuff but you can embed it in the work that you're doing um so some of the work that we do um we do need assessments within the program so i will when I meet the families and we're doing enrollment or intake process, in that case, when I'm getting to know a family, I will ask some questions. And as we build our relationship, I may ask, you know, what are dynamics? What are they willing to share? And as, you know, we have that strong rapport and relationship, they're more willing to be open about the needs that they may be experiencing, right? Sometimes it's children will tell you the needs that they're experiencing. The client will, you know, engage in a way that you have an idea of what's going on. Mm. I think it's important not to assume that everybody is a monolith. Not all people are, you know, exactly the right. same. Yeah, not mm. the same. Um, we may have similar values. We may have similar cultures. But I will tell you, like, in my country, we have, like, you know, uh, three different tribes. We all speak the same language, but you may have some differences. In some countries, mm. you might have 500 languages. Mm-hmm. You cannot assume what's happening in the north is happening in the south. Mm-hmm. Some individuals, you know, some Black and uh, BIPOC individuals are, you know, Middle class, high class, so they have, you know, they're not living in poverty. You can't make that assumption. Um, but I think what's important is, yes, spend the time, get to know the individual, do need mm-hmm. assessments, mm-hmm. make sure you have a clear understanding before you make any. Or if you find yourself making assumptions, just go back and ask, uh, and build a relationship where the individuals feel safe enough and heard, um, and they feel valued to where what they what they tell you about themselves is valid and is demonstrated through treatment planning, through programming, through target selection. Mm. Um, so I, that's my thought on, on that. Mm. Yeah, involve them, basically. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, right? I mean, you have to talk to people and you have to treat them like humans and not be arrogant and think you know everything. Yeah. And you have to ask them questions about what they want. Like, yeah. what outcomes are they looking for? Um, yeah. You can't just assume that, you know, what the their priorities are, you know? Mm. So, I mean, one of the things I ask, fam, you know, parents every time is what are your priorities? You know, mm. um, some sometimes it's about safety and awareness. Um, and that looks different for different people and at different ages and stages, right? Mm. So for, for one family, it may be crossing the street, but for another family, it may be how to respond to authority figures. Okay, Uh, because that could cause a severe hazard for one group of people and not others. Right. Right. So uh, and for, you know, also there's a, you know, there's uh, things that come into play for religious religion. Right. In terms of culture, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, so 
there are a lot of nuances when it comes to culture. You know, you may have a culture, you know, be dealing with people who have a culture where, um, you know, the male is the head of the household and certain things are deferred. Um, and so certain skills like maybe cooking or washing clothes may not be a high priority for certain ADL skills for the male. If, if you have a male client in that type of household or mm -hmm. culture, whereas, you know, it may be for someone else. Right. So there are a lot of things that may be considered a priority or a higher priority over others based on some of those nuances. And you just have to ask the question, mm. you know, um, and you have to involve people and then review those things with them before you just, you know, go about your business and, you know, distributing goals and determining that these are the things that are important, you know. And mm. and I think back to Marco's point about building relationships as well, both Amoya and Marco is, you know, you know, you can't know all culture from one, you know, one or two people, but right. more we interact with other people, the more we get to, we, people pick up on that nuance. We pick up on yeah. kind of the concept, a concept formation, right. About aspects of a culture. So I know sure. in African-American culture, it's inappropriate to call um, an older person by their first name. It's just mm. not, it's not done very different. I grew up in an all white community. And so it was very different to, for us as kids versus my peers and our next door neighbor, when she was younger, she called my mom by her first name, Linda. And my mother looked at her and goes, and th so she's a younger white <laughs> child. And my mom goes, we do not do that. We don't do that. We call each other by our Mrs. Dr. Something, but you don't mm. say that. So she didn't understand it. She felt very upset. Yeah. She went on to become a special ed teacher as an adult. She teaches kids with autism. She, my mom said she called her a couple of years ago. She said, thank you for telling me that because you told wow. me that I now know better how to interact with the parents I work mm -hmm. with. So I think it's our, your willingness as a member of a group to share that information. Yeah. But it's also, I think if you interact enough with people, you start to pick yeah. up on the aspects of culture, which you should respect with, with, with different. Um, and that's true for any group. So right. I, I just feel like um, it's, it's also being willing to interact enough with enough people to yeah up on what the differences are no really 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 good point I, I uh, one more thing no. yeah, <laughs> and lastly and i feel like this is something i see um uh, uh semi-regularly in at least in, in where i'm at right now but being open to feedback right mm. i mean what's wrong right i if i do something wrong or offensive i want i want to be told that i don't want to have this demeanor as a practitioner or as a teacher or as any type of clinician that um I'm I'm the the smartest one in the room or I'm the professional and what I say is is what it is. Um, you know, we should be willing to build those relationships both ways where I'm giving feedback and I'm receiving feedback also. Yeah. Um, and if we're not open to that or we don't project ourselves in a way that shows that, then it can um create a barrier that won't allow that open communication. Yeah. Yeah. Naya, I think that's um, that's such a good point because, and um, I think we kind of talked about power dynamics. Like when we, when you're the expert, resident expert, and you're bringing, someone is bringing their child, yeah, <laughs> yes, air quotes, resident expert, and you're either, you know, you're in education, you're teaching the classroom, you are the expert of that classroom. Mm. The parents bring the child, they expect that, right? At the same time, there's a certain power that you have that the parent is kind of giving up by doing that, bringing the child to the clinic receiving treatment, there's a power dynamic that is immediately evident. Um, and I think we really have to attend to that because 
if you have certain level of experiences with power and power dynamics, and maybe you've been taught to respond in a certain way, whether it's more or less submissive or fight back, then the responses that you're going to see within the environment are going to be different. And so mm. I think just know, getting to know individuals, but also understanding the power dynamics we bring to when we enter the room. When you are the expert, you don't need people to affirm that you're the expert. You know mm. you're the expert, you have mm. the knowledge. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think you have to do the, uh, you know, you have to be humble and, and practice with humility and demonstrate that, yes, I know some things, but there are things that I don't know. For example, you you know, you know, your kid's schedule, you know, your own culture, you know, your own values, and I don't know those things as well as you share them. Mm. And I can do my research and get an understanding, but I really don't know those things until you let me know what's happening. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if we're asking parents, like, tell me about the sleep, sleep schedule, tell me what they eat, tell me about their reinforcement, why would we not ask it? these other questions right. that are completely part of the context. So I think practicing with humility is really important and building yeah. that empathy and understanding that fosters, to me, that fosters um, you know, strong relationships. And then following up and really knowing the families that you're serving. Hey, this happened to you last week. What happened this Getting to understand and know what your priorities are. And it really does show and it makes a difference, whether mm-hmm. you're in education or in, in private practice. And I think that going into schools, this is something we always did and do, is we spend a semester or a period of time just serving in schools. So we just serve there. When you first come in, we don't come in, we're not the expert. Let's be a teaching assistant in the classroom. Can Mm. I sit in your, can I be the teacher for a day or two? Mm. Um, From one perspective, it it, it immerses you in the culture of the school. And so if you want to work in schools, behavior and sometimes we have trouble forming those partnerships. You want to go do it, spend some time in that school and it's so different man I was a principal for a while and when I was Mm. was when I saw how it felt to be on the other side of someone coming to me telling me they had what I needed and I was like no I need you to help (laughs) me take these children to the playground that's what I need and then you can kind of Mm. tell me how to run a fluency intervention you know and so it's like that I hadn't experienced that until then but I think that's so important to just spend time there but from a practical standpoint, in terms of planning interventions, it shows you where barriers are. It shows you what fidelity will look like. It shows you why they would or would not be able to implement something. I'm coming with this practice. Why aren't you doing it? Mm-hmm. You don't understand the culture of the school, what's happening there. And so when you build your intervention, you should, we, we have to know, I'll say we have to know the culture of the school, what they encounter day to day, what the kids mm-hmm. are like, so that we can help build so even though this intervention shows me research is going to work, I've lots of seen lots of replications, maybe it wouldn't work here the way it's written down. So mm-hmm. I need to yeah. come in and put myself in that place. Like Margo said, be a servant in that place for a little while so I can then serve that environment so I can then learn about it to then design an intervention. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's one of the things that I've really valued in all the work that we've done mm-hmm. um, is something that I do currently in my work and that you know, whoever I'm supervising and training and all of that, I impart that um, sort of that that specific skill for them to do. I recently had an experience where, um, you know, I had individuals trying to do some work and research within a context of where I work. And we really have to kind of require, like, you got to come check out the culture here. This is a bit typical. You got to come see the space because what you're proposing and what the culture looks like and what the individuals in the in that space need are actually a lot different than the, you know, what we have in mind. So I think mm. it's such a big deal. And we don't always have time, right? I have a limited amount of time. Maybe you have available hours to um, to attend to. And 
Um, maybe there may not be lots of opportunity, but this is how also we disseminate the research and the work um, that we're doing is we gotta be willing to listen and learn and then we can be teachers. You, you know, we all have to go through that process. You listen, you learn, and you became a teacher. Um, so I think that's a really important component. So I'm thankful that we got lots of those learning opportunities because it's impacted um, the work that I'm doing now. Yeah, wow. Um, well, thank you. And I, I don't feel like it's a waste. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, I wonder just one about sort of application of this CRP. Um, so, I mean, it all sounds really good, and I love the idea of, of, of you know, educating kids on, you know, all three of those aspects early on. Who's, how, how do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you get a whole school to do this? I guess is, is kind of the question. I, I see as a behavior analyst coming in and serving a student or two, or maybe three or whatever, or maybe a classroom if you're if you're in that role. I mean, I don't know a lot about being a behavior analyst at school, so maybe I'm just missing some points here, but I'm just wondering how you kind of, how, how you make this happen. I can kind of speak to that a little bit. So yeah. we are trying to do that in with our work at the Institute for Urban Education. So mm. we brought in people who were experts in each of these areas, and then we asked them to design modules that we could work with teachers on. Mm. Um, but that's why we embrace literacy. Because it's an, it's an observable, measurable approach to academic excellence. I yes. can't do everything, but I can do this. And where's the, where's the need, right? There's a need. Um, and so, um, you know, I live in Wisconsin pre-COVID, and I say this all the time. I've heard it on other podcasts. For Black children, 11% of Black children read proficiently in Wisconsin. That's the, that was the average. The range, there wow. were districts were 7%. So that's a need that you can address. That is an applied need. And so we can't build all academic excellence, but we can come in and work on reading, right? Mm. Behavior analysts have a, approaches to instructional design. And that's what we saw in things we said in the article mm. that can be brought in, right? How do you set objectives, operationalize mm. common core standards? How do you bring in? So all of those things are ways that you can apply it and it becomes measurable and observable, right? Mm. I think in terms of cultural competence, one of the things that... Um, you know, it is about the culture of the kids you're supposed to be teaching and empowering the kids. So that can come through literature, that can come through affirmation of culture. But I, I think the flip side of this is the way that teachers interact with kids. Um, I have, I raised my goddaughter and I got to sit in on one of her, um, her inter teacher, parent teacher conferences. Mm. And I saw for the first time, I'd never, I didn't have children. So mm. she was the one I raised. And it was the first time she'd gone to school and the teacher looked at her dad and I couldn't unmute my computer fast enough to get to hit the conversation um, to stop her from this saying this. But she said to my, my goddaughter's father, she said, your daughter is behind in reading. And she was very cold when she said it. And mm. to a parent who is a, a janitor who doesn't have time to do the things that maybe we we hear that you should do, that was unnerving. And he was like, what do you mean she's behind? There were no test scores. There was nothing. So for the first time, I felt what it felt like to be on the other side of having somebody mm. give me test scores and be insensitive about the way that they're giving those. Yeah. And so we can change that. So what we're doing is planning to do is to work with teachers. We, we, we partnered with a woman named LaShawn Hannon from Rutgers, who's done work in this area to work with teachers and teach them how do you provide information? How do you walk alongside parents? I mean, that's a behavioral skill. That's a skill. Well, how do you, doctors need it. You know, how do you say things the right way? Mm. And so that's that. And then in terms of political awareness, 
working along with like social studies classes and embedding, you know, looking at what you're doing in those classes. So there are, there are very observable, measurable ways to embed this into what happens in schools regularly. Cool. Good. I'm glad, glad to hear it. Right on. Uh, just thinking about time here well, and, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I mean, in terms of like ABA also, um, that now I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember my thought. <laughs> Come back to me. <laughs> um, in terms of, yes, in terms of ABA, you know, when we talk about caregiver training, for instance, yeah. right? Um, and culture, we talk about that. Also, you have to consider, like um, Denise was just saying, the culture of work. Um, when you look, when you go into someone's household and you're talking about how to engage in certain procedures, you know, um, making changes to behaviors, meeting caregiver goals, um, you have to take into consideration the amount of time, the amount of support, um, how they're able to engage in these interventions to meet the needs and to meet the goals that they are setting. Mm -hmm. So you can't go in with all of these complicated uh, procedures, with all of this data that you want them to collect, mm -hmm. and then expect them to be compliant with those things, right? Like uh, Dr. Margot was saying, she was saying, you know, like, you're asking, you know, you come in and you have a culture where, you know, somebody has a high respect for authority or has been told to submit to authority figures. You're coming in as an authority figure. So they're already going to say yes, yes, yes to everything mm -hmm. that you give them to do. Right. And so in doing so, then you come back and they don't have any of the data that you've asked them to collect. Right. And now you're talking about, oh, taking away caregiver training because they're not participating in parent training. Mm. So now you're talking about the possibility of losing services because they're not doing or complying with the things that you're asking them to do. But having that cultural awareness and then applying that means that you have an understanding of why mm. they're not doing these things. Um, you ask the questions about, is this too difficult? Do you have the time? How many other children do you have to attend to when you get home? How much time do you have when you get home to spend with your children? before yeah. you have to bathe, shower, feed, and put them to bed, okay? Mm. So you have to think about the lived realities of working parents yes. um, and parents who are, you know, going to be working with their children when you are not there to support them. Do you have other family members that help you with your children? Who mm. is there with the children when they come home from mm. school? So if you fail to ask some of these questions and then you just go in with a prescribed set of interventions for them, you are not being culturally aware. You're mm. not being sensitive to their needs and mm. you are setting the parents up to fail and ultimately lose the services that they so desperately need. So that is really important in terms of we talk about being sensitive to one's culture. Um, those are the kinds of questions that you also have to talk to the parents about, not just what they want to achieve, yeah. but realistically how they can get there. And realistically, the amount of time it will take to get them there so they don't feel like after six months um, that they're a failure because they didn't get all the way there. Mm. Um, that this is a long-term objective that it's, small steps and this is realistically where we may be able to go based on you know what you're able to do you know Amari, so it's, I, so that's really important um i love that you said that and while you were um kind of describing that in terms of looking at problem solving and figuring out what's working or why things 
that was a really great example because I've definitely run into those, those situations with certain, certain families or certain um, clients. One of the things that made me think of is the, um, I don't know, I'm pretty sure everyone's familiar with the performance diagnostics checklist that sure. OBMers use. You know, I think there are lots and lots of tools within OBM that we can actually use to figure out why are things not going and not working in the way that they should be. Mm-hmm. And all the things that you talked about, you have the knowledge, you have the tools, you have the, you know what I mean? It's all on that checklist. So I think it's a matter of really being systematic um, mm. about our approach and kind of not making those assumptions, or if you do make them, go back and check for these other things. Eliminate that these things are already in place, and if they're not, put them in place, and then you can go back to intervention. Yeah. Um, and and also, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, if you want to hear more about this topic, I will be presenting at ABAI hmm. on culture, compliance, and consent. Cool. <laughs> I'll see you there. I'm going. I, I'll I'm, be there too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, um, Dr. S, I think you, uh, no, yeah, you gotta come. It's gonna be in December, right? But you gotta come. Um, Dr. S, I really like the way that you summarize the way that we, you know, people, individuals can apply, whether educators or clinicians can kind of apply the three tenants um, that CRP talks about. I also think that, you know, you've got to choose one thing and at least start there. Um, mm-hmm. do one thing and do it well. And I think once you build that behavioral momentum, you, you, I don't think it has to be as complicated as it may sound. I think it's, do you respect the, you know, can you create an environment where children are celebrated for their culture? That's it. Maybe start there. Can you create an environment where you look at everybody's excellent academic excellence and how well they're doing as opposed to focusing on their deficits and what they're not doing well? Mm-hmm. I had this experience where, I was a parent in a reading program. Some of the supports we provide are behavioral supports in the classroom. Parents would say, my child is, you know, they got kicked out of school. They're getting in trouble. They're, you know, all these things are happening. A lot of it is related to their, um, you know, the reading uh, difficulties that they have, literacy difficulties, because that is a huge component that impacts, especially as they get older, so many other subject areas. Mm. You can't do math comprehension questions if you can't read. You can't do science because you can't read. And so kids are engaging in all these challenging behaviors across the day. And that is kind of serving a certain function at some point. And now, you know, they're also experiencing implicit bias. And so anyway, so I got called in to support this family. And I sat in this meeting and I had that like five different you know, educators and I just asked them, tell me what's happening. I just want to hear your perspective, your experience. I want to know what's going on. Mom had already told me, but I wanted to hear from um, the teaching team. And so everyone kind of went around and I kid you not for maybe, you know, 30, 40 minutes, everybody told me all the things that were wrong with this kid. This is what he does wrong. This is what he does wrong. 40 minutes. I really timed it because I, I really want to hear. No. So at the end of that, one of the first question I asked was, what does he do well? Mm. That's the only, what does he do well? What is he good at? And I'm not talking about apologize. So that was one thing they told me. He apologizes when he does something wrong. <laughs> He knows when he did Oh my gosh. 40 minutes. This was a a third grade student. So Um, imagine how many corrections he gets in a day and how many uh, positive um, statements are made Mm, to him. mm. Right. Think on that. That's that's an intense thing. You know, so I I left Mm. that meeting just feeling so sad. Um, And so I was like, I have to make sure in the work that I'm doing that not only am I celebrating, are we creating a culture where we're celebrating the children the minute they enter um, the classroom, we're also expecting the best out of them. We're creating mm-hmm. goals, 
that make sense, that are at the level that they need. We're focusing on this huge sort of behavioral cost literacy, ensuring that they're going to succeed not only academically, but also behaviorally um, later on. And I think that's where you have to start is what is, you know, start somewhere. And then I think slowly you're going to see an impact across the board. So really focusing on building those positive interactions is a good way to sort of restore um, mm -hmm. some of those things. And that will build a repertoire where you look at a kid and you look at what are they good at, you look at their strengths. And, you know, we always talk about our eyewitnesses, whatever you focus on is what's going to grow. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for strengths, you're going to see more of them. Um, and so I think that's another way of, I, I think it's mm -hmm. feasible. Just start somewhere and don't maybe stop trying to do the whole thing. Just start somewhere. Yeah, um, yeah. Kind of from there. And practically speaking, in schools, regardless of kid cultures in schools, where you see bias play itself out is in disapprovals and approvals. Right. So you see more disapprovals happen for kids, certain groups of kids than others. So if we could just shift that, right, where we begin to have more approvals than disapprovals, goes back to what Maya was saying about positive behavior supports in that five to one kind yeah. of ratio where you have more approvals and disapprovals. But regardless, you know, if you just approve the kid, give the kid more approvals, their behaviors. Um, you know, kindergartners get one district we work with uh, here, they put kindergartners in an alternative school for behavior issues. That's not this, and these, and it, it's, 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 it's a problem. It's a problem. And a lot of the kids that come in are kindergartners. Most of them are black boys. So when you talk about that, it's approvals and disapprovals. What it, we know. And so that's what I was saying earlier. How can ABA align itself with CRP? I think we provide very practical ways of applying it. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I really like uh, the behavioral cusp piece. I mean, I think literacy is probably the biggest behavioral cusp there is in in sort of education. That just opens up the doors to so many Everything. things. Yeah, Everything. yeah. So that's that's awesome. Um, so interesting. Very cool. But before we kind of wrap up, I, I, um, I wouldn't mind just hearing a little bit about, uh, we've touched a bit, of, a bit on it already, but just hearing a little bit about the projects folks are working on right now. I know Margot posted kind of yesterday or something, something about a big grant. So I, I want to hear about that. And uh, I just want to hear what everybody's doing. The third secret word is teacher. Margot. Um, thank you, Ben. I... Yeah. Um, so I mentioned that I'm doing the um, work within the YWCA in yeah. Kalamazoo and um, yeah. early childhood. And um, a lot, the, the grant that we currently recently received is really in um, implementing a behavioral um, instructional model that will increase literacy outcomes for uh, primarily Black children, Black and Brown children. It's a diverse group of children, but the, the majority of the children that the Y serve are Black children. 85% of them live uh, in children um, come from impoverished backgrounds. And so you know that the, the cards are already stacked against them. So mm. our goal is to improve those literacy outcomes, um, you know, make sure that they're prepared to enter school in, either at on level or in advanced with advanced skills. Mm. Um, and also to look at the behavioral outcomes and look at how we can foster positive environments to ensure that teachers are building classrooms that nurture um, and focus on restorative practices within um, classrooms. So that's what that's a sort of a big project we're going to be Kabas will be consulting on and working on over the next um, two years. And then, of course, our school opening is another one. So we're here to open up in 2023, um, mm. this year in the fall. 
Um, and so we're working towards that, and this is a, a awesome. that work as well. So, Margo, just quickly, how 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 sort of big of a program is the Y? Like, how many kids are you serving? I'm just just trying to get a. a oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> So YWCA in Kalamazoo, um, it's a pretty large organization. Mm. Um, I want to say overall we're serving approximately 100 um, children, okay, um, wow. ages, you know, like ten, three months all the way to up to maybe 12 grade. So we have oh, wow, um, a, an infant and uh, maternal and infant yep. classroom. We have infant classrooms. We have toddler classrooms. We have classrooms. We have preschool classrooms. Um, mm. And then we have a wow. 24 hour, um, 24-7 childcare program. So our goal is to Im implement, um, you know, this project with some of our population and, and then hopefully through sort of like, you know, collateral, like see some of that roll out into all of the centers um, that we're working in at this time. So we're just having a pretty large um, yeah. group of Oh, awesome. And what's anybody else doing anything cool? Or maybe it's not cool, but it could be cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing something cool stuff i'm working on uh personal growth and wellness um mm. working on getting my senior daughter into college <laughs> <laughs> those are big projects yeah big projects uh, and uh, uh i'm uh, working on um you know i'm the clinical director for a, a new a new clinic um agency that started here in uh, central florida mm. so um, i'm working really hard with that um, and trying awesome. to build a culture of, you know, <clears throat> a culture that celebrates uh, people where they are. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm still doing my part time teaching. Um, I have students in um, Hong Kong and China. Oh, yes, uh, that's a Q, right. a QBA, a QABA, QBS program. Yeah. Uh, Knowledge Network in Hong Kong. And um, yeah, so those are some things I'm doing and working on. Uh, finalizing everything for ABAI, uh, culture, compliance, and consent. So come on and see me there. That's a great <laughs> title. That's a great title. Uh, Denise, Maya, what are you guys up to? I am going to publish my dissertation this year. This yeah! Everybody is. Everybody is. Yeah. We have a, uh, write, a writing group. So it's, it's the goal. It's going to happen. Um, I'm Amazing. Also, we, we just started our semester this year, so I've got an awesome group of students. Yeah. Always, always excited, um, even though it's chaos in the beginning. Yeah. And then non-behavior analytic related, always going to plug. Uh, I was signed for the Premier Ultimate League for um, the Women's Professional League of Ultimate Frisbee, Ooh. and I so cool, for, awesome. <laughs> I played for the Indianapolis Red, so that's coming up my yes. my season. Yes, that's, I thought I read the about Indianapolis. That's so awesome. I, I didn't even know there was a Premier League. How many teams are there? You think? Oh, so we just added some new ones, actually. We just added one out of Philadelphia and maybe one more. Um, but we should have like around seven or eight. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to look wow. back into it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Really cool. Okay. And Denise? Um, okay, I was trying to make a list of some things. So uh, <laughs> in my in All my the things. Some of the things in my day-to-day -day work, um, yeah. I am the chair of the Institute for Urban Education. So our goal is to um, affect, well, I guess to affect the practices of educators throughout Wisconsin, particularly in the area of culturally relevant pedagogy and how it in effect disproportionality yeah. and issues of discrimination. And so that's where literacy comes in. I'll talk about that in a moment. We do it through research, professional development, and clinical placement. Hmm. We um, 
recently have started recording a series of a speaker series um, where people who are educators and professionals who are affected by disparities um, or who are part of the communities that are affected come mm-hmm. together to talk almost in a podcast format, but they're on their recorded videos as well. Gotcha. Um, those are available to anybody in Uni- University of Wisconsin system. We work with all 13 campuses, mm-hmm. but they are also available for CEUs through the UWM Continuing Education. Oh, perfect. Um, so I'm trying to move it so BCBA can get CEUs too. So keep an eye out for that. We're trying mm-hmm. to make sure that can be there. Um, we are currently doing some on literacy. We just recorded one yesterday with researchers um, who do work in that area. And we'll do another one in a couple of weeks. So cool. Um, I am, let's see, we're doing two research projects through the um, Institute for Urban Education. One of them is called Spaces, Affinity Groups for Teachers of Color to Support Retention and Their Success. Cool. Um, but the other, so if you're a teacher and you want to participate, you can contact, look on the uh, Institute for Urban Education's website at UW Milwaukee. But also, we um, have a larger project called Literacy and Social Justice. And the goal is to talk about how literacy and effective instruction is a form of social justice for students mm. who have been historically marginalized. So, lots of things are happening with that. So, one of them is we're doing a research project. We're looking for teachers who want to participate. There is a small compensation. Um, and so, if you're interested in that, and I'm going to probably reach out to behavioral analysts as well in some ways for that. So, if you're interested in doing it, you can reach out. Again, go to our website. It's on there. Um, Doug Greer and I are editing a new book that will come out this year called, um, teach, I'm sorry, When Text Speaks, Reading to Learn, Learning to Read. It's on a behavioral cool. approach, the science applying the science of behavior, a strategic science of teaching to reading, and it's wow. edited. So all the ladies on this call are authors, but we also oh, have nice. lots of other authors. So that's coming out, Sloan Publishing this year. Amazing. Um, I am associate editor of Behavior and Social Issues as well, just kind of pointing to that. So we have a special issue call that deadline is April 1st. It is on literacy and social justice. It's Mm. about the contributions of behavior, the science of behavior, behavior analysis, as well as the social justice side. So if you want to write on either one of those pieces, either a social justice issue related to Mm. reading or historically marginalized children, or you want to talk about a contribution you've made through your own research or have a conceptual article, you are welcome to submit. We are accepting our uh, uh, submissions now. And that is deadline is April 1st. Mm. And um, I know it sounds like, so I also, we just started a new applied behavior analysis program at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. It's starting in July of this year, focused on racial equity and behavior analysis. Wow. So that's what I'm doing. Woo-hoo. You can come and do any of those things. And I'd love to have people apply. It's all online. Yeah. So anybody's interested, it's approved. It's a BCS approved through ABAI. So you can come and you can, yes, I'm always teaching one. I think we're going to try and get her to teach one of the classes. Um, but yes, we'd love to have people come and apply and come get your BCBA with us. Come get wow. your, I'm sorry, your ABA uh, training to apply for your BCBA. So that is, that is fan- that's it. That's Those are the things. Fantastic. <laughs> and um, when do uh, these, uh, what's, what's their earliest date that any of these recruitment for any of these studies closes? It's ongoing. It's okay. ongoing. So we are going to run them through next school year as well. Okay. But we but we're running them. We're looking for people to start in the spring. Okay. Um, and then so if you can apply before May and then okay. again, we'll run a summer cohort. So if yeah. you just go to the website again, Institute for Urban Education at UW Milwaukee, all the information's on there and you okay. can go ahead and submit your name and we would love to have you come on. I'm just going to make sure this episode goes out a bit earlier than I normally would because you, would have be that, you have that April 1st date and we don't want this to come out on the 30th. Yes. 
that yes. sort of thing. So we'll, 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 we'll get this out a bit earlier so folks okay, can, uh, can sign up and, and I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'm, uh, I should be able to find all the links in my searches when, uh, when I go back and do the editing, we'll get those all in the show notes for folks. Sounds good. Well, wow, so amazing. Uh, thank you all for coming on. I, I really want to thank Margo. I, you know, I, um, I, uh, because, you know, I, I just I had just originally just reached out to Margo um, and, uh, uh, and, and she opened up the, the floor to, 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 to add all, all you amazing folks to this conversation. And I, I hope more guests do that when I call them, offer to bring the, their cool colleagues mm-hmm. along because uh, this was just so cool and so interesting for me. I learned so much. Uh, and I know a lot of fo- other folks are going to get a whole ton out of this. So thanks so much for being on the show. So awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much Thank for having you. us. Yeah. Right on. Thank you.